0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1933, a radio station in Detroit WXYZ debuted a new program in the depths of the Great Depression just weeks before the inauguration of FDR came this.
1: Of light, a cloud of dust, and a
2: hearty, How Silver! The Lone Ranger!
1: With his faithful Indian companion Tonto, the masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage. His daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past from the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver, the Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver! Let's
2: go, big fellow! I'm Silver! Hey!
0: The Lone Ranger was created by WXYZ station owner George W. Trendle and writer Fran Stryker. Fighting outlaws with his great horse Silver and his faithful Indian companion Tonto, The Lone Ranger was an instant hit, first on radio and then in movies and on TV for the next quarter century. Who was that masked man fighting crime on the frontier? Writer Fran Stryker created an original story about six Texas Rangers ambushed by outlaws. Other
3: ranger. All dead. Dead. Ah. Uh, you only Ranger left. You lone Ranger. Tonto, those killers know me by sight. If they know one man escape, they'll look for him. And them not know one escape. Tonto bury five men. Make six grave. Crook think you die with others. Good. Then my name shall be forever buried with my friends. From now on, my face must be concealed. A disguise, perhaps. Or a mask. That's it. A mask. With your help, Tonto, I'll get every one of those crooks. In the ranger's eyes, there was a light that must have burned in the eyes of knights in armor. A light that through the ages lifted the souls of strong men who fought for justice. For God.
2: I'll be... The Lone
3: Ranger.
0: But this was no flawed, frustrated anti-hero. The Lone Ranger never drank or smoked. He never swore and used perfect grammar. He was a role model for children and shot the guns out of the hands of villains instead of killing them. And showwriter writer Fran Stryker created a creed by which the Lone Ranger lived. Here it is recited at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia in 2013 during a celebration of that masked rider of the Plains.
3: I believe that to have a friend, a man must be one. That all men are created equal and that everyone has within himself the power to make this a better world. That God put the firewood there, but that every man must gather and light it himself in being prepared physically, mentally, and morally to fight when necessary for that which is right. That a man should make the most of what equipment he has. That this government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall live always. That men should live by the rule of what is best for the greatest number. That sooner or later, somewhere, somehow, we must settle with the world and make payment for what we've taken that all things change but truth and that truth alone lives on forever in my creator my country my fellow man
0: the lone ranger creed my creator my country and my fellow man words we don't often hear these days in superhero movies the lone ranger continues in the pages of comic books and movies the latest was in 2013 and in generations of young people that listened to the radio program or saw the TV show. But it all started on this day in history in 1933 on one radio station in Detroit. And that piece came from one of our producers, Beowulf Rockland. Beowulf, how did you first get introduced to The Lone Ranger?
4: Well, Lee, I had always listened uh, from an early age uh, to radio, I can remember listening to uh, the great Paul Harvey from about the age of five or six. And when I was around nine or ten, I started listening to old radio shows. My, my grandfather uh, gave me some tapes, introduced me uh, to them, and I realized that one of my local radio stations would play three hours of old-time radio shows every Sunday evening, and uh, what I would do is I would take my $2 allowance. I would buy some really cheap audio tapes to record them all, play them back later during vacations, during family road trips. I love Burns and Allen. I love Jack Benny, but one of the ones that stuck with me the most was The Lone Ranger. I love the the exciting trumpet theme from the william tell overture that opened the program i loved the lone rangers fight against villains i loved the the moments where his identity his mask was about to be removed and his identity possibly revealed of course that would never happen and to this day i still have some of those tapes kicking around my my parents house
0: and do you still have the tape recorder you recorded those shows on
4: No, sadly, the uh, tape recorder that I used to record that has long since uh, gone away. I used to go into my parents' room where my mom had a combination uh, tape player and radio. I would roll on all of those radio programs, flip them over uh, in between shows so that I could get one show uh, per side. It was one of those big clunky 1980s things and uh, it's long since gone the way of the dinosaurs, unfortunately. But the memories and the images from the Lone Ranger live on in my mind, as they do for many, many people.
0: Well, thanks for sharing those memories. Beowulf, as always, he's a new contributor here on Our American Stories. This day in history, the Lone Ranger was born in 1933 on a radio station in Detroit, WXYZ. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. In 1968, on this day in history, the Tet Offensive began in the Vietnam War. Now, that's a phrase we hear every now and then by folks on TV trying to make a point. But what does it mean? What happened? We turn to Jim Robbins, author of This Time We Win, Revisiting the Tet Offensive, to walk us through this often-referenced but poorly understood part of the Vietnam War. First, what's the conventional wisdom about Tet?
2: The Tet Offensive, which took place in January and February of 1968 during the Vietnam War, is remembered by most people as a surprise attack by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong on symbolic targets, during which media reports turned the U.S. public against the war, and drove President Lyndon Johnson to the bargaining table. If people know anything about the Tet Offensive, that's basically what they know. But the problem is, everything in that statement is a myth.
0: All right, then let's revisit Tet piece by piece. Was the attack a surprise?
2: The U.S. military and the president knew that something was coming. Documents had been captured throughout the fall of 1967, outlining the overall scheme of the attack, and the enemy plan had even been briefed to journalists at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in the first week in January. Getting closer to the attack, units in various local areas captured documents showing how their cities, how their localities were going to be attacked, and when the attacks finally came, they came exactly according to the plans that had been captured. Army Lieutenant General Frederick Wayand, who commanded the forces around Saigon, had received permission from General William Westmoreland, who was our overall commander in Vietnam, to deploy his troops to meet the expected enemy attack. The South Vietnamese government had shortened the traditional Tet holiday furlough, and U.S. forces across Vietnam were ready for the coming battle. And even the media understood that something was about to happen. Don North, reporter for ABC News, said later that for months, any journalist with decent sources was expecting something big at Tet. And General Wayan gave off-the-record briefings detailing his preparations for the coming attack. And even the Washington Post, the day before the Tet Offensive, ran a headline about the expected spring offensive by the communists. So in general, The military, the decision makers, and even the reporters on the ground knew that something was going to happen. It was not a surprise attack. However, because many people in the domestic press, the reporters back home, uh, the reporters in the United States who didn't have the same sources, and the American people did not know it was coming, it surprised them. And Lyndon Johnson later said that not getting ahead of that story, not... Telling people more about something was going to happen. That was one of his biggest mistakes.
0: Was the Tet Offensive just a symbolic attack by the North Vietnamese?
2: They weren't trying to send a message. They wanted to win. The overall communist plan was known as the General Offensive General Uprising. Strategists in Hanoi, beguiled by American press reports believed that their tripwire attacks would foment a mass, spontaneous revolution in South Vietnam, and that the people in the South would rise up and overthrow the Saigon regime and throw out the American imperialist occupiers. That was their idea. They staged mass attacks throughout Vietnam involving over 80,000 troops attacking over 100 cities and towns. I mean, this was not just symbolism. The problem was that the media tended to focus in on a few specific symbolic attacks, such as on the United States embassy. They would call the embassy attack a kamikaze attack because all the attackers were killed. And thus it kind of reinforced that narrative that, well, it must have been symbolic because everybody who attacked got killed. But no, the orders that were given to the attackers were to take and hold the embassy and then await expected reinforcements. Of course, the reinforcements never came. And when the people failed to rally to the Viet Cong cause, the attackers were left exposed, outnumbered, and outgunned. And this took place throughout the country. So that rather than achieving the total victory that they sought, they suffered a humiliating and historic defeat. But unfortunately, because the American press, and even people in the United States government were defining this as symbolic attacks, well, it's very difficult to say when you are defeated if your intent is just to create a symbol. Yes, the Viet Cong got a lot of attention with their attacks, but they didn't achieve any of their objectives. However, since the objectives were defined down for them by the cia by the president and some statements that he made and the secretary of defense and then later by the media it looked as though they had achieved a victory
0: was tet the turning point when americans decided that vietnam was a lost cause
2: people look at Public opinion at the time, and think of the peace marchers, the doves, the protesters, and so forth, and popular culture since 1968, has generally accepted and transmitted the notion that by this time, most people opposed the war effort, and that the doves had come into their own. In fact, if you look at public opinion polling at the time, it is the exact opposite. Yes, many people opposed uh, Lyndon Johnson's policies, but not all of those who opposed his policies were in favor of peace. In fact, most people who were against the Johnson policies wanted to ramp up the war. Gallup polling taken before and after Ted showed that people actually wanted to escalate by a two-to-one ratio. They wanted to step up the war after the Tet Offensive because they realized that the enemy was on the run, that we had defeated them, and now was the time to escalate and get the war over with. The number of people who wanted to pull out of Vietnam declined after Tet. In fact, the number of people who wanted to settle the Vietnam War using nuclear weapons was actually twice the percentage of those who just wanted to pull out and wash their hands of Vietnam. So it wasn't true that Tet caused the public to suddenly turn against the Vietnam War.
0: Finally, did the Tet Offensive drive President Johnson to the bargaining table?
2: Peace talks were Johnson's objective all along. That was Johnson's entire strategy was based on a negotiated settlement. He didn't need to be driven to the negotiation table. He had floated 70 peace initiatives between 1964 and 1968. All of them were refused by the North Vietnamese. He tried escalating. He tried de-escalating. He tried bombing in the North. He tried bombing halts. Johnson tried everything to attempt to get North Vietnam to the table they were the ones who refused. It wasn't Johnson. The only thing that brought the Vietnamese to the negotiating table ultimately was the defeat in Tet. It wasn't that they had won in Tet. They knew that they were weakened after the Tet offensive and there was very little they can do. Then in March of 1968, at the end of March, Lyndon Johnson announced that he was not going to run for another term as president. He did so in order to convince the North Vietnamese of his sincerity in wanting to negotiate with them. The North Vietnamese responded by finally agreeing to have peace talks in Paris. And then to show their sincerity, the day before the peace talks, they started another offensive called the Little Tet Offensive, which was the original phase two of the uh, first Tet Offensive, To show that they really wanted peace, uh, they attacked. This was the time when public opinion started to turn against the war. Basically, Lyndon Johnson had given up. So it is said that after Walter Cronkite's historic reporting uh, on uh, the Battle of Huey City during the Tet Offensive, Lyndon Johnson said, If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. But Johnson hadn't lost Middle America. In fact, Middle America lost Johnson. When he gave up, they gave up. When he said that it was time for peace talks and we're going to end the war, the American people said, okay, fine. If that's what we're going to do, then that's what we're going to do.
0: And by the way, you're listening to Jim Robbins, author of This Time We Win, Revisiting the Tet Offensive. And just a, a couple of themes emerge from that. Don't let sloppy reporting or misunderstanding lose wars. Don't redefine the enemy's objectives down so that their total failure can be portrayed as an historic victory. Executive leadership matters. Public opinion turned after LBJ gave up. Not because of battlefield actions or even media coverage. And that may be the most important lesson of them all. Leadership matters. Character matters. And it can affect outcomes. And by the way, see the killing fields. Because after we pulled out from Vietnam... What happened after with Pol Pot may have been some of the most atrocious mass killings of all time. This is Lee Habib, filling in the gaps in history. On our This Day in History, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down Starting with Jamel.
5: February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life.
0: February 8th,
6: 2006, really just another day for me.
5: All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day
6: was another conviction.
5: So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good.
6: I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call.
5: So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone.
6: So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told one guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm gonna make sure he has something to
5: do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope.
6: I ain't got no dope, it ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up.
5: How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible?
6: Trial? He's gonna take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's gonna take it to trial? I would've wasted my time.
5: Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do.
6: So I told my story and I got my conviction, and Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison.
0: Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt
5: like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him.
0: Jamel continued to battle with his demons.
5: So <clears throat> after battling with these these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear them. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get these thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way, I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years, so I need something different. I got a son, I want to see him, I want to be able to raise him, I want to be a part of his life, so I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell and I prayed before I went to sleep and I was like, you know what, God, I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning, my first thing to do was speak to somebody, which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? (laughs) Like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought, because I said I was going to go through with this. I'm going, to, I'm going to adapt this change into my life. I'm going to do something different.
0: Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed.
5: I go to work this one morning, and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the counselor's office, and he was like, the fax machine beeped, and he handed me the paper. And it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned, and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, We can try all we want to, it just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say so, he has the ultimate plan. He did that, he, me letting that that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go.
0: Jamel served four years of his 10 year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free.
6: So February of 2008, I get caught with crack heroin and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys, gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I gotta talk to you. He said, yeah, you do, I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me. To finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. (laughs) Like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office, and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said amen. I was bawling, and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man. There's like a list. There's got to be a list of things I can do. Give me a list, and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible. That's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, Pastor, but it's kind of of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a, a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught, and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI, and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, and they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case.
0: It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January '09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of '09, Jamel was set free—a switch. But the story does not stop there.
6: 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord.
0: Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day. In August 2011.
5: I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought i seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him. Get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that, that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck on my hands, I said, Hey, you remember me? And he said, Yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind it was Two things, it was myself again telling me to hit him. Hit him, what are you waiting on? You're taking too long, hit him. Then God was like, hey. (laughs) God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this, I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him, (laughs) hit him. And my son was right there and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter. I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm going to leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it. I'll never see him again anyway.
0: What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison.
6: So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association, Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, uh, community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? (laughs) One day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name, I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. (laughs) God's funny, right? (laughs) So I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like?
5: Yeah. It was like uh, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, Yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, Yeah. God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentoring. I'm like, OK, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, No. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that.
0: Jamel wasn't finished.
5: She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Ms. P, that was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Cause I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I want it to be God's decision. So I prayed and I opened my eyes and there was a book on my desk and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident. This is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it.
0: All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives. And it's not just Christians. It's Jews. It's Muslims. Because Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride. Men particularly, women too, pride. The thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer, God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring. A guy who had only been referred to as Zookie.
6: So we sit down. I said, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in city of Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. i like, what is does this dude smile at This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park and I was like, oh, shoot. (laughs) And I just went to apologize and dude, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance, I'm so sorry. He said, I know, and he was like offended, I know. I said, dude, there's gotta be something I can do. He's like, no, 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 it's over, it's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that and I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore, it's forgiven, it's done. I was like, dude, can can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray?
5: <laughs>
6: He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up, we said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to and I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> And then I was, we were meeting every week, and I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe, and you need a job. Uh, are you, uh, do you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you, or what if we hire you, and, and you be, and w- are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. Uh, <laughs> And he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiles, like it breaks down all board. He's like, no, man, no, I got you, I got you. Mm -hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? (laughs) he'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be at the cash register someday and then just get your (laughs) big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. And he's like, no, bro, no, we're good.
0: And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over. It's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, This story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories. This is our American story, and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests, folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times best-selling author, Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us.
1: (laughs) I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. (laughs) I
0: think you need to take a run. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have a beer, yeah. (laughs) I'll have a beer and run. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and what are the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today?
1: I was born in Los Angeles. So California, born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister... Uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school, and my dad was working two jobs. So I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. and She said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention. I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild. And I just remember sitting there in that classroom just you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running
0: home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention. So you know, it, I, I think that's just all of us.
7: <laughs> We're both alike, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so tell me this. you, you, You then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid
1: well there 's this idea of never stop exploring, and in running it 's very symbolic you know i ran uh, I ran a marathon when I was fourteen years old, so that 's you know twenty six point two miles, and I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run uh, and Then I heard about people running further than that and i I couldn 't believe it. I heard about a fifty mile foot race. And I thought, that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. i got to try it. (laughs) So I signed up, and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50-mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified. And I'm thinking, qualified for what, for the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western States 100-mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no. The starting gun goes off, and you run as though you're running, you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And I, and that just was so. It was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was you know the most extreme temperatures on earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. I got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will
0: And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money They weren't in it for the fame They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly And it was a hobby for them it, They were tinkering for them And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how how odd And I go, no, how American Because we Americans do this all the time
1: uh, well, you know, and how, let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as, you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the the, the largest desert, it's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's it's you know <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races you know you get you might get a medal or a trophy i mean there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these but i just love the challenge of of you know of of, of actually bettering yourself and that's what it comes down to it's you know can you um you know can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that
0: you know, you're just testing your own limits. You want to know what you can do or can't do. In the end, Dean, and your challenges—it's just your own personal challenge. In the end, you don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors, do you?
1: Well, you know, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So, I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like I failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do. It's it's more about survive. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles or a 100 mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're you know, you're, you're 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 rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it it is really uh, just about survival more than anything else.
0: What led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons.
1: You know, a guy told me he was part of this 50-marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every, every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for 10 and a half years. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have 10 and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in 10 and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and and see the country and run while you're out there. See the country at, you know, eight miles an
0: hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus, the ultra-marathon man, and Dean is a writer, a raconteur, and we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Karnasas' story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and we return to our conversation with ultra marathon man, Dean Carnassus. And and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tablarosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at eth- what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. Talk about a little of that Greek DNA because I, that, you, we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's been said that, you know, that, that no other. No other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're, <laughs> we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, You know, Greeks are very independent. Um, Even the the early Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks you know the greeks have said we can't turn anywhere else i mean we're kind of we we've, we've got to help ourselves they've been very self-reliant is is one quality that i've seen with greeks and um, you know we're we're a, a definitely a minority i i think that uh, greek americans make up um, something less than you know half a percent of the us population but um per capita there are more greek phd's than any other class and it's millionaires as well there are more greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is again per capita. It's a right. very small, small base of people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I'm Lebanese and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And I got to tell you, Dean, not many people, I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I oh, don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, 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 the nature of the American experiment and the American people. They were really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore him and get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> And that 's just
1: i 've got Lebanese friends, I know what you 're talking about they're 're one knuckle they 're funny people, really great people, yeah, yeah. we always just
0: say let 's just turn <laughs> something really ugly into something funny, yeah um, we life's short, so let 's talk back to that fifty marathons in fifty days in fifty states you You started in St. Louis on September seventeenth two thousand and six with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November fifth, two thousand and six with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights. Some low lights too, Dean, because there have got to be moments, even inside you, where you're going, what was I thinking?
1: (laughs) Plenty of those moments, Uh, but, you know, it was was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them, so she'd basically homeschooled them as we're driving around the country for fifty days their schools were sending them the lesson plans, emailing them to my mom every Sunday night and she'd teach a lesson throughout the week and we all of a sudden became like the a uh, 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 kind of this traveling um, road show where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious you know what were the experiences they were having and then their parents learned about it so now their parents were following us and people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out like we'd have fifty sixty people show up at the starting line of a race in Iowa on tuesday morning <laughs> that's great and and yeah, no, and marathons were flying from Alaska, a guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood that sisterhood that came together um, so that was the you know the re- the really uh poignant and and beautiful moments you know some of the low moments were. I remember running a a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold. And the next day I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees, running through the desert. And I remember finishing the race thinking, this is marathon 19. I can barely walk. (laughs) You know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it. Um, And just, you know, kept that American spirit, just said, you know, when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon, just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom, and splash some water in your face, you know, okay, that's great, just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time, okay, lace up your shoes, okay, get out the door, (laughs) get to the starting line, okay, just start running, just put one foot in front of the other, Uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge, as well as a physical one.
0: Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not anything else but these two simple words, next play, not the play before, and not three plays, five plays the next game or the NCAA finals, just next play. And so many of the kids and, and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating. That way
1: well, and it's more approachable you're right um it, with running, you know it gets very granular. I just say you know instead of next play, it's next step, yep, next step, next step, because you tend to look at the mile markers, especially during a marathon, you know you might be at mile you might see a mile marker that says mile eighteen which means, you know, you basically have over eight miles to go. And, you know, you might be cramping at that point. You know, you might just be completely exhausted. It's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done? Don't do that. I just say next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. Next step, next step. So really, I can relate to that next play mentality.
0: Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think, how to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip because, my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was r- jogging across the country like? And by the way, what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50-day in-50-state uh, adventure? And what did your family learn?
1: Well, you know, I, I learned we're, we're a very diverse country. I mean, you, you, you hear this said all the time, and it's almost cliche, but the regional differences, um, not just with the food and, you know, the dialect, but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Uh, but the one, the, one, you know, the, the one uniting thing is that we're all free, and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running, and there'd be 40 or 50 people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out, there, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm, and people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that that divide us, right? Be it you know our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the god we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running, uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality all of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of you know the food we ate. Um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side.
0: Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, <laughs> you're not talking.
1: And I'll go with the latter. Yeah. yeah, I think I'll go with the
0: latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people. And you're not going to get them into an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages. We're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle and Epic Run that Inspired the World's Greatest Foot Race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries, and just all around hurting?
1: Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? You do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco, there was a marathon in Oakland. I got it, I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So, you do a lot of of running. And I also do a lot of cross training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, When I say cross training, I mean what's called high intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet, my cross training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as possible, you know, as I can, and do everything um, with that lens.
0: And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise, uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, <laughs> and it's just incredible. T- t- tell me this. In mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running. Um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a – t- I'm, I'm an introvert. Um, you know, just by nature. So running to me, and if you saw where I ran, up in the hills uh, north of San Francisco, uh, it's it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think that you know, unfortunately, that's that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species. Is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature. And to me, that's, you know, that, that's part of the human experience. And it makes me feel spiritually enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills. Um, and, you know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yeah. You know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends, to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours.
0: Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable, and it's these wide open spaces and this peace of mind, and having to fill up your own space.
1: Well, I know, I, you know, it's it's ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate in, into this as I'm running, and then and then I type up my notes. And, you know, even Nietzsche said the only, you know, the, the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. <laughs> and, I, you know, so I, I can completely relate to what you're saying there.
0: Oh, it's so it's so true. And, and talk to us about the diet thing, because you had said, you know, eating really was a, a fundamental part uh, of you and your performance. And so talk about that, uh, that 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 regiment that you go through, and what you eat and what you don't eat and why.
1: Yeah, so I've, I've really refined my diet over the years, and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that you know, leave me feeling lethargic and you know, kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet, and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food, nothing that, that has to go through a machine or be refined. So um, I don't need any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was uh, a Neanderthal man. Uh, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's it's just, you know they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either. So it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped. And everything I do, There's, you know, Jack Lelane, you must know Jack sure, Yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book, Dean. Um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can.
1: Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey. And it's about the original marathon, and the the Greek runner Pheidippides, or Pheidippides, that ran the marathon, and uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well, so, uh, you know, ironically, right now, the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history, and I'm not a historian, but I delved very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that to me was fascinating. I think that's something that, that, you know, we look at the the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23 Me, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all
2: this in the book.
0: You know, there's one point in time where you say, at the start, I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist, at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I'd been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother you just mentioned him and that feeling running and starting to run by the Acropolis?
1: Yes, yeah, so that ancient brother, was. his name was Pheidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemorrhormae, They were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle and it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later.
0: And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show, and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it. We do it all year round because the men deserve it, and we talk about men present and men and women past who served, some who've paid the ultimate price. And for this one, we turn to General John Kelly. He spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation. This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each
7: and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the Walking Dead, from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him and he supported them as well on $13,000 a year. Herter was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country, not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader I'm sure went something like this, okay you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herter then rolled their eyes and said in unison something, like, Yes, yeah, Sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And if you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died and because these two young infantrymen died they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Krapurata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Coast Guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental Commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, but reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened, and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, Sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. With tears welling up, he said to me, Sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us. What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from the truck into the valley until it exploded, six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over. Only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before. Let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, this Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. It took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here the recording shows the number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd have known that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence Yale and Herter never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder width apart they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only at this point one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their guard. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country, or their flag, or about their lives, or their deaths. But more than enough time for two very brave young men, like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families who have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty into eternity.
0: Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herder's, and that's General John Kelly, their last six seconds, revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps.